This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest-running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information. Astronomy Cast, episode four thirteen, navigating near. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly fact-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today. With me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville, and the director of CosmoQuest. Hey, Pamela, how you doing? Hi, I'm doing well. A, a bit more than sleepy. Uh, we just finished a two-day all-hands meeting for CosmoQuest, where we brought in all the new people for our funding, um, and then got home to a sick dog. So it's like, I've gone three days without enough sleep, actually much longer than that. So this is going to be the Sleepy Pamela episode, so please be kind. Oh, I won't. <laughs> um, I just got back from uh, no, yeah, no. The tough questions got to come. It's got to happen. I, I've, I have no, yeah, I have no sympathy, no mercy. But uh, yeah, I just got back from a week long trip in Banff, Jasper. And if you've never been to that part of the world, I highly recommend it. It was, it's just, it's so great. It's unbelievable. What a beautiful, beautiful place, man. I, I like road trips. So today's episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by me. Well, it's actually brought to you by Universe Today, which you're probably aware is the website that I run, uh, www.universetoday.com. I've been doing Astronomy Cast with Pamela for almost 10 years now, and I've been running Universe Today for more than 17. And in the past, the website was fully supported by advertising, and it mostly still is. It's expensive to pay for all the writing and audio and video and web servering that we do. But many people have asked how they can support the education and space and astronomy news that we do directly. And there is definitely a way you can do it that gives you some cool perks in return. So if you join our Patreon campaign, uh, which you can just go to patreon.com slash universe today. And if you join at any level, starting at just $1 a month, we will remove all the advertising from universe today for you. You'll get advanced access to all our videos, see behind the scenes and additional content that nobody else sees at higher levels. We'll give you a shout out. We'll put your name in the credits and even give you access to our internal Slack communications tool where our team comes together to discuss everything we do. But most importantly, if you think that what we're doing is making the world a better place, it's a way to directly support it. And the more you pledge, the more articles we can write, the more videos we can make, and the more we can just make everything better. And I love the idea of creating content directly for you, the space fan. And I hope you'll join us with your support. So just go to patreon.com slash universe today and check out how you can support what I'm doing for you. This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Eighth Light Inc. Eighth Light is an agile software development company. They craft beautiful applications that are durable and reliable. Eighth Light provides disciplined software leadership on demand and shares its expertise to make your project better. For more information, visit them online at www.eighthlight.com. Just remember, that's www.thedigit8th. L-I-G-H-T dot com. Drop them a note. Eighth Light. Software is their craft. Astronomy Cast is proudly sponsored by CleanCoders.com. Training videos with personality for software professionals. 
So it's hard enough finding your way around planet Earth. But what do you do when you're trying to find your way around the solar system? There's three dimensions. Today we're going to talk about how spacecraft navigate from world to world. And next episode, we're going to talk about how they get from star to star. In the future. In the in the future, how it will happen. Uh, okay, cool. So Pamela, let's let's just start and talk about, a bit about sort of what methods we use to just navigate here on on planet Earth, and then why we can't scale that up so easily. Well, once upon a time, it was simple. You said, there's a tree over there on a hill, there's a mountain over there, and back behind me, I see the ocean. I'm going to orient between these different things. And while you might sometimes screw up because you misjudged your distance to the tree, you generally knew where you were in the grand scheme of your small area. Uh, As people's worlds got bigger, as they explored further and further across land, it became a matter of, I know the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. And we could get our basic directions off of the stars and the sun with enough guesstimates on time that we could handle things like the Mediterranean. Now, when people started trying to travel across the ocean, we had to then solve the time problem. Uh, Travel this far across this completely blank ocean for this amount of time, look at what the stars look like at a given time, and you could figure out where you were north, south, east, and west. Right. And that was a huge, huge challenge that knowing where you are – North and south is is relatively straightforward. You just look at the the stars, and you can tell where you are. Knowing where you were, uh, east to west, as you said, took took a really really precise clock. And is a there's a sort of wonderful story about that about the the was it the uh, chronograph, yes. the latitude prize, yes. um, no the longitude prize. Sorry, amazing story. Um, there was a oh, did you ever see it? There was this great uh, television special. No, I'm not I sure didn't. who did it. It sort of covered the whole story of the Longitude Prize. So, sure. so it's totally worth going out. Uh, Dava Sobel did a book on it. Go read her book. Um, but here on Earth, basically, if we can figure out north, south, east, west, we're confined to. A surface, so we're only moving really in two dimensions. So we only need to know where we are along that north and south and that east and west, and we're good. But when you get out into outer space, or when you add the third dimension on the surface of the planet, you suddenly need something else. So GPS actually here on the surface of the planet, if you have a good GPS connection, it will tell you how many stories up in a building you are. You need that extra thing in space helping to nail down your position in that extra axis of movement. Although it's still clocks, which is kind of fun, right? It is. But here now you're measuring how long it took between when that signal was released from a couple of different spacecraft to when you received it because all those different time lags tell you, oh, it was less lag to this spacecraft, more to that spacecraft. Now I know my distance from these three spacecraft. Now I know how high above the surface of the planet I am. Right. And so your your GPS device is just listening to all of these signals. It locks onto as many GPS satellites as it can and then looks at the time codes from every single one of these satellites and then figures and then calculates its position in three dimensions 
mapped onto the two-dimensional surface of, of planet Earth and tells you where you are. And as you said, you get your altitude as, as well. So this is all great. Thanks, GPS. We've got this great system for navigating ourselves on, on planet Earth. So once we get up into space, how does it get weirder and harder? Well, so here on the surface of the planet, we're we're only really worried about three dimensions, up, down, left, right, uh, side to side, or north, south, east, west, and altitude above the surface of the planet. To measure your position or to lock in your position in three dimensions, you need three measurements. We nailed that. Problem with the solar system is you now have to add a fourth dimension of time because the planets are constantly moving. Right. So, but I'm just trying to think about it. Like, so so if you were like, say you had some spacecraft and I'm just sort of thinking how I would just go about it is that I would somehow have a bunch of either signal receivers or cameras on it that were looking for the positions of, I guess the signal on earth, the signal of, or at least a way to tell where the positions of the planets are, where the stars are. But I mean, so, they're not, things aren't going to move very quickly when you're out deep in space. So how, how do they do this? Well, we're not going too deep in space yet. We're staying within our own solar system. Right. And, so the stars aren't going to move. They're all going to be in their same positions. So, and it's not like you're calculating when they rise and set. So, so to first order, you figure out how far you are away from the surface of the planet Earth. And we can do this using the deep space network. We send a signal out to the spacecraft. The spacecraft sends an AOK back or moral equivalent. And we measure the transition time that it takes from message sent to message received. That tells us where it is. And it can do something very similar to figure out where we are. So now it knows its distance from the receiver on earth. Right. But distance, that doesn't tell you position, just tells you distance. Well, it, it tells you that you're on a surface of a sphere that is centered on that point that was sending out the signal. So you've now confined yourself to the surface of this sphere. Now, once you've confined yourself to the surface of the sphere, that helps. Now, the next thing that the spacecraft will do is uh, quite often they can take pictures of the bright stars and figure out relative to the bright stars, okay, so I know now know where I'm oriented relative to that other sphere. And between these two different things, you can figure out exactly where you are on that surface. So you get your distance from the Earth, and then you figure out where you are on that sphere by looking at the stars and figuring out your orientation relative to the stars. And so you... So you, you've got this calculation, so I'm imagining it's, but it's an imaginary sphere. It's not necessarily your orbit. It's like a it's, – it's, it's a crystal sphere. It's, a, it's an imaginary <laughs> sphere that, you're, that your spacecraft is on for this moment, and you also know the orientation of the spacecraft. Exactly. Now, all this tells you is the where. It doesn't tell you the how fast bit, which is – something that really matters when a spacecraft is in motion. Yeah, so, and just sorry, just to go back to sort of nautical terms, right? Knots, right? They that was the way they used to calculate their their distance, their position was that they would put a rope out behind the 
the uh, their ship, they'd tie a bunch of knots on, and that would tell them how fast the ship was going, depending on how many knots were were poking up above the water. And then they would calculate. So they'd say, we, we traveled in this direction for at 30 knots for 17 hours, and so we're pretty sure we're at, we're at about this position. But it was it was a pretty crude. rough, very crude method, and that's why they came up with the, the clock system instead. And and so we don't exactly have the ability to throw a rope out behind a spacecraft and measure how it's moving relative to the doesn't actually exist ether of space. Right. So, so if only the ether existed, <laughs> that would that would be be so easy. But this is where Doppler shifting is super useful. So we can look at what is the frequency shift in that signal that we're getting from the spacecraft. And and the other thing is we can actually refine our position by receiving that signal a couple of different places and say if if we have a circular planet Earth, okay, this receiver over on this one side of the Earth, it's getting this Doppler shifted component. This receiver over on this other place on the Earth is getting a different Doppler shifted component. And that starts to get at what is the velocity in two different dimensions because you know the X and Y components have to add up to be – the same for the spacecraft. Since you're in a different position, you're going to see part of that X and part of that Y differently for the two different positions. So sorry, so just to sort of go into more detail on this then. So the the spacecraft is, or say Earth is sending a signal to the spacecraft. Mm -hmm. The spacecraft receives the signal. It knows the frequency of this signal if both were, I guess, at rest. You know, it knows how, how, what is the frequency of the signal that's outbound I guess, you know, it's been calculated beforehand or it's provided as information. And then it measures not only or provides the time code, but it actually measures the frequency of the signals that are coming towards it and says, okay, great. You know, I know what the frequency should be. I'm calculating what the frequency is now. So I know what my my relative velocity is to that signal. Yes. And, and if I can get two signals and calculate the frequency, then I can see, oh, you know, I'm moving a little towards this signal and a little away from that signal. And you can do the math to figure out your exact velocity in this three-dimensional space. Exactly. And and one way to think of it is if you have a car that is moving straight away from you, you have pure Doppler shift. If you have a car that's moving in front of you as it goes by um, on a road that you're standing on the sidewalk beside, then you have zero Doppler shift when it's straight in front of you. But as that angle changes from being off in the distance where it's close to coming straight at you, but not quite because you're on the sidewalk and not on the road, that angle as it changes, the amount of Doppler shifting changes. And then it happens again as it's moving away. Well, if you have two different people watching at two different points on the sidewalk, they're going to experience the zero Doppler shift of being directly in front of you on the street at different times. And at any given moment, they're going to see a different frequency shift. Right. Okay. So now we've got distance from the earth. We've got our velocity and we got a sort of a sense of what our orientation and position is. So does that give us every all the tools that we need to pretty accurately know where we are? It's The velocity is hard to get completely right because with our two 
measurement example, we've now only gotten that velocity nailed down in two different axes. You really want to have three different points to measure it to get your three-dimensional velocity. So once you get that three-dimensional velocity, measure your three-dimensional location, you know where you are and you know where you're going. And that is the important part for not losing your spacecraft. But beyond not losing your spacecraft, you need to also know all those three-dimensional components for where you're getting to and calculate into the future, how's my spacecraft moving into the future and how is the planet I'm going to or the comet or the asteroid, how is it moving into the future? Right. And so that is the, I guess that's part of the time component is that with more measurements of of these, you know, your distance, your velocity in the three dimensions, your orientation, you start to chart this line in space that tells you with greater and greater accuracy where you are along, you know, what your position, essentially, you're calculating what your orbit is around whatever body you're orbiting, be it the Earth, be it the Sun, be it Mars, whatever. And so that's the point that you really, then the, the, the flight controllers really know exactly where that spacecraft is, given enough time. I mean, it's very similar to finding the asteroids. You know, we talk about how the, you know scientists have found some asteroid, and we're not sure if it's going to smash into the Earth or not. We just need to take a few more readings, and then we'll get a sense of where of where it is. So, same thing, right? It, exactly the same thing. And the, one of the things that is a problem with asteroids, but not a huge problem with asteroids, is you have to worry about what are the gravitational interactions they're going to have with other bodies. So how is Ceres going to randomly yank around smaller asteroids that get too close? We also have to worry about with spacecraft as they approach other bodies, how is that gravity going to affect their motion? Um, so we have to think about both, well, the spacecraft has its own engines, its own thrusters, and we can use those to change its velocity. But then gravity is out there exerting this constant force going, I'm going to push you. Well, pull, actually. And so the sun is out there just yanking away on the spacecraft. The planets, when you get too close, yanking away on the spacecraft. And this is useful when we use gravity to change the orbits of spacecraft. But all the things you have to keep track of, you have to know where you are, when you are, where you're going, and what extra forces the universe is going to add to your journey. So let's talk about about how then the flight controllers will try to modify. I mean, it's it's one thing to know where you are and, and where you're going, but what you really want to do is is be able to go to different places. And so how do they then make their, like, what kinds of calculations, what do they do to be able to then change a spacecraft's orientation? Well, if, if you're in an orbit around a, a simple body, so a satellite orbiting the Earth, for instance, then if you know the where you are and the how fast you're going, that will allow you to figure out the rest of your orbit more or less. You want more than one reading just because things change, errors happen. And then to change your orbit, you figure out where in the orbit you need to change your velocity to get the effect you want. So, for instance, if you launch yourself into a highly elliptical orbit where you're coming down to maybe low Earth orbit, 
300 miles up at your closest approach, zipping out to 10,000 miles out on your further approach. If you want to circularize that orbit, you either have to slow yourself down when you're at that closest approach so that you don't zip back out and then you end up with a tiny circle. So you can go from far out to circularized close in, meet up with the space station. But if you want to circularize yourself out further out, you speed yourself up on that further out point. So you stay out in those outer parts. So this is where we talk about Delta V. Yeah. So, I mean, everything I've learned, I've really learned from uh, the Kerbal Space Program. And uh, what's really great about that program is is this – you start to realize, you see how everything is just these orbits, right? They're all ellipses. And so your spacecraft is just following some circular orbit or some elliptical orbit around some body and just goes around and around and around and around. And then if you want to go somewhere else, like say you want to go from the Earth to the moon, you don't just point your spacecraft at the moon and just – fire your thrusters. I guess if you had unlimited fuel, you could kind of do that. But what you do instead is that you calculate the new orbit that you want to get to. You calculate your insertion orbit. And then it's going to say, you know, it's going to come back and say, okay, great. So now you need to orient yourself in this direction and you need to burn your thrusters for a certain amount of time until you've reached this new orbit. And sometimes once you've reached the sort of the top part of the orbit, you then need to turn around and do a different burn to stabilize the orbit into the new position. And that's just to get yourself to where you can do an orbital insertion. And so going back to what you talked about, like once you know where you are, where you're going, what your speed is, then you can make those calculations for the orbital burn that's then going to put you into the new the new position that you want to be in. And one of the things that always amazes me is it's it's relatively easy to start calculating in the grand scheme of the universe the how much delta v you need in order to move from one orbit to another. But where it starts to get tricky is when you make that delta v, you're also changing the mass of your spacecraft. So now the kind of delta v that you need to put in it's it's you'll get a different delta v with a different amount of force depending on if you're heavy or you're light so the amount of firing you need to do to get that same 100 kilometers per whatever unit of time is relevant change in velocity if you're full up on fuel is going to take a whole lot more fuel if you're lightweight takes a whole lot less force. And this is what we saw in the Martian. He knew what delta V he needed to get, but he knew his spacecraft was too heavy for the amount of fuel he had to get him that delta V. So if they could remove it, they removed it. Make it smaller, you require less force for the same delta V. Right. Uh, so are we at a place now, I mean, you talk about the deep space network, are we at a pl place now where the spacecraft, like there is some kind of navigational system that's just going on across all the spacecraft in the solar system? If, you know, like I, I just imagine is there like a GPS version of, of the spacecraft orienting themselves in the solar system? Or is it still fairly early days on this? It's, it's not early days, but it's not GPS. It might be safe to say we're in the early 80s. We, we have plenty of receivers on the Earth. It becomes fairly simple to catch the signals that we need to. 
Mars, we have a bazillion happy little rovers on the surface, by which I mean two. And and those are great for sending signals back and forth from the things orbiting Mars, uh, getting better positions for both things on the surface and in space. We're getting there. Uh, we don't have the global network we might like that allows everything to be tracked absolutely all the time. There's just not enough dishes. So we take turns and we hope things don't stray too far between when their turn comes up on the deep space network. So then can you imagine going into the future, uh, like think about the expanse, you know, I don't know if you've watched the expanse yet. It's awesome. If you haven't already, um, you know, I can imagine a few hundred years down the road when we do have a colony on Mars, when we do have, you know, someone has hollowed out asteroids just as expected by Dr. Pamela Gay, that we've got these spacecraft buzzing around, mining different worlds. What would a future navigational infrastructure look like here in our solar system? It, it's going to be a land of transponders. The uh, You walk into a room, you see the holographic display where everything is saying, I'm this distance from this, I'm this distance from this. And we'll probably want to have some fixed points that we work very hard with lasers to make sure that they are our standard reference frame, just like we have the GPS around the Earth as a standard reference frame. So you can imagine that there are at various points spacecraft that are sitting there going, I know exactly where I am. I know exactly where I am. And those are the things that become our solar system-wide GPS as they orbit the sun instead of orbiting our Earth. So I'm I'm sort of imagining that there's like almost like buoys like when you're on the yes. ocean there's all these marker buoys and they're mostly like there's rocks over here so be careful um because you know we just use the gps when we're navigating on the on the ocean but i can kind of imagine there are these asteroids and moons and obviously earth and places like that and each one's going to have some transponder that maybe can broadcast in in a wider field right it's not directing right at your spacecraft it's instead maybe doing something that's that's sending out a signal in in all directions and then you're just you're just counting up how many different transponders that you can get all at the same time and then you know you're able to get a signal from six different transponders and so you can calculate your position and then you know oh we want to get into orbit around phobos we're going to need and then you calculate the burn right Exactly. That That is very much the future that we're looking at. And what's amazing is how much we'll learn about things as simple as what are the densities of different asteroids as we're able to see interactions with things flying past each other and we measure their exact sizes better, how we're going to be able to get at the fine details of orbital interactions over time as we see, oh, this transport is a one hundredth of a second off of where we expect it to be. That means there's some interaction that occurred. We're going to learn so much more about the densities of the rocks in our solar system as we drop radio transmitters on them one by one, year after year after year. Right. And eventually we will have probably a transponder on every object out above there, a certain size. Above a certain size, and not to mention a bunch of just artificial ones placed in 
in spots that we've created just to help if if it's not you know if there's a big wide space or, or whatever so uh it's it's pretty exciting to think about that that sort of future because it means that we've become a true solar system spanning civilization it, it's an yes and and what's awesome is all it takes to keep refining that is to use shorter and shorter wavelengths of light until well we know where things are within nanometers that's amazing so next next uh, episode we're going to be talking about a similar idea but how would we scale this up to to navigating outside of the solar system so we're going to sort of move into science fiction land I'm, I'm really excited cool all right we'll talk to you next time thanks pamela sounds great fraser thanks for listening to astronomy cast a non-profit resource provided by astrosphere new media association fraser kane and dr pamela gay you can find show notes and transcripts for every episode at astronomycast.com. You can email us at info at astronomycast.com. Tweet us at astronomycast. Like us on Facebook or circle us on Google+. We record our show live on Google+, every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, or 2000 Greenwich Mean Time. If you missed the live event, you can always catch up over at cosmoquest.org. If you enjoy Astronomy Cast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax deductible for U.S. residents. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend us to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to this show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Our music is provided by Travis Searle and the show is edited by Preston Gibson. <laughs>